This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You can be seated. Good morning. My name's Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here. It's good to be with you. Um, it's good to be with many of you on the men's retreat this weekend. It was a fantastic time. We had 60-something of our men who were there. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Michigan, and I love the Midwest. I mean, look out these windows. This is, this is just Midwest glory right here, all of these different colors. And, uh, and I don't take that for granted. It's just amazing every, to see the seasons change through these windows. But that's not the only reason that I love the Midwest, okay? Every time I leave, I'm reminded why I, I love the Midwest, because other places might have the ocean. That's pretty nice. It's vast. It's big. It's beautiful. They might have that nice, dry, warm desert air. They might have mountains, mountains that are majestic and soar into the clouds. All of that's really nice. But you know what those places also have? Things that can kill you. <laughs> Monsters, like bears and snakes, scorpions, sharks. We don't have any of that. I mean, you go in Lake Michigan, you go swimming, you're not worried about what's swimming next to you. You're never going to see anything. I mean, you might get a leech, okay? That's freaky. But other than that, you're good. There's nothing that's going to, like, pinch you, right? There's no spikes on the bottom of, uh, of the lake. You go walking in the Lincoln Marsh. You're not worried that you're going to come around the corner and see a mama grizzly, right? If you're lucky, you see a woodpecker, <laughs> and you give thanks. Midwest is not majestic. We all know that. It's humble, but it doesn't have monsters. And I bring this up because our psalm this morning, I don't know if you caught this, verse 13, 14, our psalm this morning talks about monsters, sea monsters, the Leviathan, a seven-headed sea monsters. And I'm really excited to talk about this later. Um, but we're, we're, we're kind of, we're drawn in by monster stories nevertheless. I mean, Jaws has this kind of enduring appeal. You know, Godzilla, Stranger Things, the idea that there's something monstrous lurking right around the corner. And I think the reason for that is because this is life, isn't it? I mean, this is life. Not, not like fictional monsters, but other scary things, evil things that are out of sight and out of our control. That's the world we live in. We all live in a world of monsters. And these are, these are monsters that, that go by names like cancer, monsters like recession. Can't tell when it's coming. It's, it's looming there. Could it happen? Monsters like war. Could those faraway wars come even closer? Even just monsters like bad people who do bad things. This is the world we live in. And Psalm 74 is a psalm about what to do when the monsters rear their ugly heads, what to do when monsters attack. And so our series is called Prayers for Real Life because the psalms, all 150 of them, they're a book of prayers that teach us how to hold on to faith in all kinds of circumstances, even the most desperate. And Psalm 74 is a prayer of lament, of grief and disappointment. I mean, not just sadness, but like soul-crushing despair. What do I do now? 
And of the 150 psalms in the Bible, over a third of them are this kind of prayer, are psalms of lament. What do we do when our worst fears are realized? The psalms of lament teach us. They teach us this. There's this line from King Lear that the Christian author Frederick Buechner uses in some of his writings. And it's something like, speak in a time of grief, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. And that's pretty close. That's pretty close to the message of the Psalms of Lament. But if I could tweak it just a little bit, it's speak what we feel and what we ought to say. That's what the Psalms of Lament teach us. That in times of grief and despair, we speak what we feel and what we ought to say. So let's begin and, and start with some background. So most of the psalms are general. Like, we don't know the circumstances that, that were kind of behind the writing of, of, you know, any particular psalm most of the time. But Psalm 74 is different. So you look at verse 3. And the psalmist prays to God and says, Direct your steps. I mean, literally, like, God, pick up your feet. Go. Go to the perpetual ruins, the forever ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. And he's talking about a very specific event. He's talking about 586 B.C., about 600 years before Christ, when the Babylonians swept into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They turned this awesome, big, majestic building into nothing. And for the Hebrews, you can't overestimate the significance of this event and the, dis the disappointment that followed because... The temple, it wasn't just like a work of art, like the Eiffel Tower. And it wasn't just like a political building like the White House. I mean, you can, you can imagine the cultural devastation if either of those structures were taken down. But for them, it was more because it was God's house. It was the one place on earth where you could be sure to find God. And the temple was, was central to Hebrew identity as the chosen people. It's what marked them out. And without it, without the temple, without God's presence, they're nothing. They're nobody. They're alone. They're unprotected. Look at verse 9. Psalmist says, we, do not, we don't see our signs, and there's no longer any prophet. That word signs, it can mean like miracles, like things that God has done, but it also just means like, like a flag or a banner that you'd follow when you're marching. They're saying, we don't know where we're going. We don't have any signs directing us. We don't have God speaking to us. And there is none among us who knows how long this will last. And you hear the devastation there. Have you, have you had an experience like that? Maybe you have where where the world just drops out beneath you. It's not just a sad event. It's not just a difficult event, but it's a disorienting event. You know, a, a job loss or a loss of a person or a relationship. And it leaves you thinking, what do I do now? Well, the psalmist reaches to God for stability in this moment. And how do you even begin to pray? And the answer we're given is simply to speak what you feel, to pray honestly. Lament begins with honest prayer. This is verses 1 to 11. 
Lament begins with honest prayer, honesty about our feelings, and honesty about the cold, hard facts. Look at verse 1. The psalmist just jumps right in. He doesn't couch his prayer with all these kind of platitudes. I know things are going to get better. I know that you're in control. He'll get to that. He believes all those things. But he just goes right in. Oh, God, why? Why do you cast us off forever? That's what it feels like to him. It doesn't feel temporary. It feels like he's, he's been rejected completely, a closed door. And I'm so moved by this because often the God that we meet in the Bible is fearsome. You know, there's, there's stories about people approaching God in the wrong way, and they're just struck dead on the spot. And yet here, the psalmist just barges right in and talks to God like he's a friend. Yes, like he's Lord, but also like he's a friend. He's familiar with him. Like they've spoken hundreds of times before. Why? God, why do you cast us off? And he shares what it feels like from his perspective that God is angry and that the rejection is permanent. Verse 4, he's honest about the facts of the situation. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. You know, it's this this image of the Babylonians coming in, this loud army coming into the quiet, solemn space of the temple, like hungry lions. Verse 5, they were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all of its carved wood, that's important, all of its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. So let's talk about that for a minute the carved wood of the temple. You see, the, the temple wasn't just a stone building. And so if you read this, this other Old Testament book, 1 Kings chapter 6, there's this you know, long section about the construction of the temple. And if you've been reading for the Bible for a long time, you've probably been skipping passages like these for a long time, right? Because it's just like, what do I need to know about this? Okay, it it's, it's, feels boring. And it is, unless you know what's actually happening there. So in 1 Kings chapter 6, it says that the inside of the temple was all constructed with this, you know, elaborate and expensive imported wood. The whole thing was paneled. It says not a stone could be seen, and it was, it was shipped. The cedar in Cyprus was shipped from Lebanon as part of this kind of elaborate business deal that Solomon sets up. And the wood around, I mean, think of these wooden doors that we have, but all around in this room, the wood was carved to look like things were growing out of the walls. So like gourds and, and pumpkins, things to eat, pomegranates, palm trees, um, flowers in bloom, and even angels around nearby. I mean, just, just imagine sit, standing in that room with a candle and seeing this, this garden reflected back to you. Well, that's significant. That's intentional. It's supposed to echo creation. Because the Israelites, the Hebrews, they, they believe that in the beginning, there was a garden. And this garden was like a temple because God lived there with his people. And that's what a temple is. A garden that was like this giant temple. And you know the story. Adam and Eve, they go their own way and they're forced to leave the garden. They become subject to evil and death. But that's not the end of the story because God is committed to his original plan and creation. 
And so he calls this new race of people, and he promises to live with them again in the temple that they would build. And as our reading in Isaiah says, Israel would blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. They would be a blessing to the whole world. So just like the world was created like this giant temple, so the temple is created like this miniature world, a new garden, a new creation for the healing of the nations. And that is why it was so devastating to see it chopped down and set ablaze. The temple wasn't just Israel's hope, but the temple was, was the hope for the whole world. Verse 8, they just totally disregard this meaning. The Babylonians say to themselves, we will utterly subdue them, we'll crush them. And they burned all of the meeting places of God in the land. What do you do with devastation like that? Psalms teach us you speak what you feel. Lament begins with honesty. Honest feelings. Honest facts. It's not a prayer of doubt to approach God with the question, why? Asking why is a prayer of faith in the midst of doubt. The psalmist knows that God is in control. What he doesn't know is why he's letting these things happen. Verse 11, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, the hand that could do something about this? Take it from the fold of your garment. Destroy them. He's saying, God, don't just sit there. Do something about evil. And all of this, this angst, this question, this speaking what he feels, brings us to the second half of the psalm, the confidence that he has and what he knows is true about God. He doesn't know the reason why, but he does know the character of God, and that's what he takes refuge in. So secondly, lament. It takes confidence in God's power. Look at verse 12. Why, God, do something, and yet... And yet God, my king, is from old. God, my king, is ancient. He's seen a few things. And he's a king because kings are the ones who have the power to do something. God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. That word salvation, it's actually plural, as in God is doing lots of things and has been doing lots of things. His hand isn't just tucked in his robe, but he is working salvation throughout the world. And the psalmist's mind goes principally to God's power in creation, his power over creation. He says, you divided the sea by your might, which could be a reference to the parting of the Red Sea, or it could be a reference to creation, that he separated the waters above from the waters below. If you look at verse 16, you, see, you hear more of this theme of creation. Yours is the day, and yours also the night. He's the one responsible for the sun coming up and going down day by day by day. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun, making the seasons summer and winter. And then notice what else he says in verse 13. Do you remember this from Sunday school? You know? And then on the second day, after he split the sea, he crushed the heads of the sea monsters. And the Greek... He crushed the dragons. 
He crushed the heads of Leviathan. Again, that seven-headed dragon. You remember this from Sunday school. I think we teach this as part of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. He fed the beasts of the field, this giant sea dragon. What is this? I mean, I bet you never knew that the Bible talks actually quite often about sea monsters. Okay, so again, here's some, here's some background. For, for, for the Israelites, but also a lot of the nations around them, the sea, it was a terrifying place. In fact, the sea was like a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of what's scary in our world, what's awful in our world. And if you've ever been whale watching, you get this. Because you're out there and you're like, yeah, maybe I'm going to see a whale. And then they rise up from the surface and you're like, whoa, those things are big. And they've been down there the whole time. But the sea isn't just scary because of the creatures that are there, but because it's chaotic. In a moment, a storm can roll through and these waves turn into this giant death trap. And so for the Hebrews and the other nations, they're freaked out by this, and any God worth believing has to be able to contend with the sea. But secondly, Israel isn't the only nation with a creation story. So you think back to Genesis. It's this watery world, and the Spirit hovers there over the waters, and it's a picture of peace and serenity and this peaceful display of God's power. That's the Israelites' story. The Babylonians had a different story. In the Babylonian story, it starts with violence. It st creation starts with a battle. And that kind of makes more sense if you think about it. I mean, our world is full of violence. Doesn't it make sense that that just goes all the way back to the beginning? And in the Babylonian mind, the, the, the sea was this chaotic place, and it was filled with monsters, and it took a god of order, Marduk, to come in and slay those monsters and cut them in half, and half of it he used for heaven, and half of it he used for earth, and boom, there's a world. But even then, the threat of chaos is always looming. That's the Babylonian idea. So why does the psalmist talk about that story? Why does he refer to that? Because it's a symbol. The sea monster is a symbol of everything that's terrifying in our world, everything that's monstrous. And he's saying that Israel's God is more powerful than the scariest things on earth. More powerful than violence, more powerful than chaos and bloodshed, more powerful than cancer, more powerful than politics, more powerful than gods who do battle with dragons because he's a God who splits the sea and crushes dragons. I mean, think about all the times that the Bible talks about God's power over the sea. When you think about the flood, this chaotic water engulfs the whole world and destroys everything, but when God's ready for it to stop, it stops. There's no problem for him there. When you think about the Red Sea, there's this impenetrable, impossible wall in front of the, Red, in front of the Israelites, and God just splits it in half. You think about the Gospels. You know, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat, and there's this huge storm, and it's freaking the disciples out. This is their worst nightmare to be alone and exposed in a raging sea. And they cry out to Jesus because they're afraid they're going to die. And what's he doing? Napping. He's asleep. 
completely peaceful and serene. You think about the time that Jesus says, hey, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up by just walking on the waters. God is more powerful than the scariest things on earth. And that, that perfect peace and serenity that he has in creation, that's what he has right now. That's what he'll always have. It's part of who he is. It's part of his character and his nature. He cannot be other than peaceful and serene, no matter what the chaos is in our lives. And the psalmist appeals to this. He takes confidence in the power of God. He doesn't understand why, but he knows that God is powerful. And then he also takes confidence in this, the promises of God. So go back to the beginning of the psalm. Verse 2, you hear the psalmist say, Remember, God, remember your promises. Remember your congregation, your people. Remember Mount Zion, the place where you dwelt, where you promised to dwell. Uh, verse 20, have regard for the covenant. What's a covenant? It's a promise that God makes with his people. A covenant like the, the covenant he makes with Abraham. That from you is going to come a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you, and everybody's going to be blessed through you. And the psalmist is saying, God, remember what you told us. Because it's not, just, it's not just that we're suffering, it's that your reputation is on the line. You've bonded yourself to us. And if we go down, it's going to look like you're a God who doesn't keep your promises. But I know that that's not true. I know that you do keep your promises. Verse 22, arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. And what do we know? We know that the Lord does keep his promises in the most surprising of ways. The Lord keeps his promises by taking on human flesh and taking the words of lament onto his very own lips. I mean, one way you can understand the Psalms and read them is to imagine Jesus praying these Psalms day by day by day throughout his life. What are the circumstances that would have been relevant to, for him to identify himself with the poor and the needy? And Jesus comes into the world completely dependent. Jesus is a man without a place to lay his head. He himself became downtrodden on our behalf, yet, verse 21, he was one who praised the Lord to the very end. And not only does he speak this lament, but he becomes the subject of this lament. God in human flesh is himself a temple, a temple which was profaned and brought to the ground by a foreign army. And yet, God my king from old was working salvation in the midst of the earth. And through the destruction of this temple, he crushed the dragon's head. That's how our God keeps his promises. And as Christians, this is our heritage. This confidence amidst chaos. As Christians, we are water people. We've been created anew through the dragon-crushing waters of baptism. A new creation so that we don't have to be afraid. 
If you're baptized, you've been brought through death and given the promise of resurrection, of final victory. And he even gives you a vocation to be fishers of men, to be people who go out into the chaos of our world with Jesus to draw others into this victory, into this kingdom. Friends, we live in a world of monsters. And in a scary world, we have to speak what we feel. But we also need to speak what we know is true, our confidence in the power and promises of God. And when we speak, God hears us. He hears us, he sees us, and he is powerful and his promises are sure. Evil has an expiration date. It's temporary. It won't be forever. When you think about this promise, Revelation 21.1, where he says that the day is coming when the sea, this place of chaos and terror, of monstrous realities, the day is coming when the sea will be no more. And God's purpose and creation will be fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man as it was always intended to be. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be, there, shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And the king will say, Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. When the monsters attack, speak what you feel and what you ought to say. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.